right, everyone. Welcome back to Reform Everything, the podcast that attempts to carry on the tradition of the Reformation by looking at ways in which we can restore, renew, and ultimately reform the society around us. I am your host with the most, Thomas Pig. All right. In today's episode, we are going to actually cover some topics that have been bringing my mind a lot lately. Um, we're going to talk about some particular reforms for our government. That's right. Everyone's favorite topic, the government of the United States of America. We are going to look at ways in which I think we could limit some of the powers of the government, restore some sanity to Washington, D.C., and allow my fellow Americans, your fellow Americans, all of us, allow all of us to continue with our lives in a peaceful manner, allowing us to live the way that we feel is best as long as we're not harming others, right? That is my ultimate goal is to make sure that we can live in a way that best supports ourselves and our families as long as we're not infringing on other people. So today in this episode, we are going to look at some reforms. And these are going to be reforms that are going to be targeting various branches of the government. Now, some of you may remember from your civics classes, there are three branches of government. We have the um, the executive, we have the legislative, and the judicial branches. So we're going to be talking about all three branches of the government and various reforms in which could return power to the people, taking away the power from these branches and restoring the order in which the Constitution set up. So this is going to be a particularly fun episode for me because I like talking about all this political wonky stuff. I hope it's fun for you too. I hope that you'll give me some feedback on some of these. Maybe uh, if I get enough feedback, I'll send it over to some members of Congress and we'll see if we can get these amendments passed and change America, right? No, just kidding. And not that that's not going to happen, right? But uh, anyway, yeah. So let's go ahead and jump into it. All right. But first, let me actually give you a little bit of my political heritage here, because I think it's important for you to know where I am coming from whenever I'm speaking of these reforms, why I believe the way I do. So um, essentially, I have been involved with politics as long as I can remember. Um, from my earliest days, um, some of my earliest memories have been with my dad out there doing political things. I've knocked on doors. I've handed out flyers. Um, you know, in the middle of the night, one of my favorite things to do with my dad was to go out in the middle of the night and uh, we would go post signs across town before elections. Um, we would um, go to local protests. We would go to local rallies. And through some of these rallies, I've met uh, people ranging from the Reverend Jesse Jackson to former Illinois governor and now pardoned from jail. Rod Blagojevich, uh, which I'm not too proud about. I, I, I hide the picture that I have with him. Um, but I've also met um, current Senator Dick Durbin, um, you know, lots, lots of people. And as I got older, when I moved out here to D.C., I actually went to Congress a few times to do some hearings and stuff like that. Got to run across people like Bernie Sanders and, and others. So some famous names that I have come across, some people that I've rubbed shoulders with, or rubbed elbows with, I guess is actually the term. Um, but anyway. So I remember some of my earliest memories being with my dad, for example, um, going to a protest in my hometown because people were upset that there was international business coming into town who was essentially going to be uh, competing against all the local businesses. And people were afraid that these local businesses would be shut out because uh, they could not compete. 
Right. And that's what ultimately what happened. This business came in and they ex- well, actually, they expanded their business and um, they shut out every competitor in town. And so I remember being there and hearing the people, uh, you know, chanting things whenever the police would come by and saying, hell no, we won't go. Right. So I was in the thick of that kind of uh, thing. And um, I, I, you know, also as I got older, my dad, he ran for a few political offices. He ran for a county board a couple of times, did not win, but he came close in a couple of those elections. Um which was really cool because I got to be part of his campaign and helping him design signs and do messaging and, and spread the word. Um, but you know, it was just a really uh, an integral part of my, my formative years was being involved in the political process. When I got to high school, I was involved in, um, what was called the youth and government program. It was offered to high school students. So we got to basically be mock legislators and, so we would make up legislation. We would go through a few rounds of debating it and editing it, and then finally taking it to Springfield, the capital of Illinois, for a weekend. And it was usually March. And during that time, we would have a mock legislative session where bills would be debated on the floor. People would vote for them, pass them, fail them. Um, there would, you know, we would have elections for a governor and for speaker of the house and all these sorts of things. So it was really fun. Had a great time with that. And you know, the really interesting thing is that there were some bills that were brought up in that legislation, uh, that mock legislation uh, process that actually became real legislation later. So this is really cool to get kids involved in this type of thing. And um, so that was, you know, some of my earliest memories, seeing my dad rail against some of the um, policies that the city was taking on, the county was taking on, um, bringing in a a prison, um, a federal prison that ultimately cost millions of dollars to the taxpayers. My dad was you know, one of the people leading the fight against it because he knew that it was not going to be a moneymaker and really it did not start making money for a long time. Um, cost the taxpayer millions of dollars and they put this federal prison right down the street from a high school. Like it makes no sense. Like literally dangerous people being shipped in from, you know, Chicago and other parts of the country staying at this place, you know, a couple hundred feet away from where students are learning you know, algebra or, or biology, right? Like that's makes no sense. Um, so being part of these issues, being out there and expressing our voices, going to uh, city hall meetings and raising concerns, being part of, um, you know, like a community watch. Um, we were part of that. We, um, did a city beautification. My dad was in charge of for a few years, you know, we were very heavily involved with that. So a lot of community organization, a lot of political action. And that's where I really have grown. Um, you know, my, my, my love for politics was, was through those things. My favorite classes in school were always the social sciences. Um, political science was my major in in college. And I moved ultimately out to the DC area because I wanted to be involved with politics community action, nonprofit stuff, just things that I could help my community. So that way we could reform our society because there's so much corruption and stuff going on. So, um, as I grew up, I was probably what most people would have called a Reagan Democrat or a blue dog Democrat. So people who liked their guns and loved their God, but also was cool with unions and, you know, helping out the common man and that, that sort of thing. Right. And as I got older and I went to college, I actually became more leftist. I was pretty well socialist for much of my college experience. Um, 
you know, that's <laughs> got, uh, got into a lot of um, online fights with people back in my community, which was always fun. I like to, um, you know, stir the pot a little bit with some of the older folks, some of the uh, quote unquote boomers. Um, got to the point where my parents are actually calling me and saying, you need to settle down. You're getting a little bit radical and, <laughs> and, and whatnot. But, you know, I was having fun with it. I really love to express my political ideas. Um, I think that every American should be knowledgeable about these things and should be able to pick up a debate, have fun with it, not get too serious, even though these are serious topics, but you know, it's not worth getting in fights over. I'm, I'm not going to punch someone in the face because they have different ideas. I'm not going to dox someone because they have different ideas. And yeah, I've come across some pretty horrible people, some people who are racist, some people who are communists who want to chop off the heads of the rich and steal their wealth, you know, come across all all kinds of people. And ultimately, I don't think I want to use political violence against these people. I want to try to help educate them, try to find common ground with them so that way we can come and and, and try to live in society peacefully. And if we're not able to, then there needs to be a peaceful separation, right? That's that's ultimately what needs to happen. But anyways, around 2012 or so, after I had um, supported the Democratic Party for a long time, never voted Republican, probably never will as, as I get older, um, but I supported the Democratic Party, um, voted for Obama, was all about the hope and change and, and, and everything. But then I started getting dissatisfied with the political process, especially because you know, in the early 2000s, I was really against the wars that we were having in Iraq, Afghanistan, and just everywhere else in the world, all these little hotspots of activity that we were doing, um, very much against, um, you know, Bush, who said he was a compassionate conservative while bombing, you know, schools and blowing up hospitals and drone striking funerals and weddings and everything like that. So I was really upset with that. And that's one of those things that the Democrats really pushed hard against. You know, we've got to stop these wars and everything like that. And I was loving it. Like, yes, we're, we're going to rally together and get rid of these wars. And then something happened. Whenever Obama took charge, the wars continued. Um, you know, we didn't pull out. We did not stop the drone strikes. We did not stop the violence overseas. We continued it. And in some ways we increased it even. Um, so around 2012, a little bit after um, Obama's election, I just got really dissatisfied with him and the way that he was basically carrying on these imperialist um, I ideas, um, you know, killing people in the millions overseas um, with our, with our wars and everything. Like it's just, man, it makes one of those things that really infuriates me. Um, I get that we need to have a strong military and we need to take out evil people. But whenever you're blowing up funerals and weddings and blowing up school buses um, or supporting regime regimes that blow up school buses, like, you know, us supporting the Saudis who blew up the um, school bus of children in Yemen, that's, that's just immoral. That's evil. And there's no reason that we should stand for that as Americans. We should rally against those type of things and say, bring everyone home until we can control what we're doing. You know, there's no reason for us to be shedding our blood, shedding our treasure, sh shedding the blood of others, you know, destroying their countries. There's no reason for us to be doing this. So anyway, tangent aside, um, I got dissatisfied with the Democratic Party. I got dissatisfied with the way the government was operating. Um, and I started getting more into libertarian ideology because this is the only ideology out there that says people should be able to live the way that they want to as long as they're not harming other people. And that is really, I think, one of the key core philosophies that every human who is moral should have, right? 
if you're doing something in your home and it's not hurting someone else, it should not be any of my concern, right? This extends to everything from um, people who are in same-sex marriages or relationships to people who are using drugs or if people want to, um, you know, worship the God that they want to worship. Like those are things that I should not have control over as long as they keep it to the, their confines and they're not imposing their views and their will upon my family or myself, then I don't have a problem, right? I mean, I might have a problem on a spiritual level and say the, these people are not doing what God wants and that's not right. And that's a, you know, a conversation that we can have that goes alongside with this. I think it's perfectly fine for people to express ideas about morality in the public sphere and try to sway other people to, um, you know, their faith or their moral views. That's, I think that's a perfectly fine thing to do in the public sphere. But I do not think it's the place of me to go vote for someone to restrict the way that you love, um, the way that you spend your money, the way that you um, operate your household. Like that's should be left up to you. But we live in a day and age where the government is basically omnipresent. Um, they are probably listening into me right now and watching me on my webcam. Um, hello, Mr. FBI agent out there who's watching me. I hope you're having a great day. <laughs> um but we have this government that's always everywhere, that's always watching, that's always listening, and ultimately leads to a government that's always oppressing. So I hold to an ideology that says that, look, hey, the government can be good for some things, but we need to really restrict its power because whenever it gets too powerful, it just oppresses the people. It is completely inefficient. It's immoral many times, um, and, and there's no reason for us to have it right? Just because there's the opportunity for something to be provided for us does not mean that maybe we should actually go for the opportunity because, um, you know, and I know many people don't like um, Ronald Reagan, but I believe he had a famous quote along these lines, and I'm going to probably misquote a little bit, but um, said something along the lines of the government that's powerful enough to give you everything is also powerful enough to take everything away, right? So, and that's what we've seen. We've seen the government that can give us all sorts of money and gadgets and nice things to keep us complacent, but also has taken away our, our Fourth Amendment rights, our First Amendment rights, our Second Amendment rights. You know, they've challenged due process. They've challenged all kinds of things. And basically the only amendment that th of the Bill of Rights that they have not um, really abolished in some way or, or restricted in some way has been the third amendment. Like I don't have any troops stationed in my house, although I'm sure that's coming at some point, right? Like who knows if that's coming, but we have this all powerful government that can give us so many things, but it also is taking so much away from us. So what I, you know, am imagining is a government that's not going to be completely gone. Um, I, even though I do lean towards a philosophical anarchist view thinking that really there is no man that's worthy enough to um, you know, have power over another man, right? I realize that that's not the reality of the world and that's not going to ever be a reality for us. We're never going to have a peaceful anarchic society where people just live in harmony with no rules and everything like that's That's just not reality. Um, but what can be a reality is to start limiting government intrusion into our lives. Um, while it's nice for us to have social nets to provide for the most needy, we need to look at those social nets and saying, is that actually helping the needy? Is that actually helping the poor? Or is it restricting them? Is it actually preventing them from going out 
and doing something that is going to improve their lives? Is it just putting a bandaid on a gaping wound, you know, and they're bleeding out and they need more than just a bandaid. So I think that, you know, the more that we're able to take an honest look at the things that we're doing and just because they've been around for a while does not mean that we have to continue them. You know, we fought this war on poverty for so long and it's only harmed people who are poor. Um, when you look at the income for, um, you know, black Americans in the country, I think one of the times that they were actually most equal to white Americans was actually in the 1950s, whenever there was segregation. So look, I'm not by any means saying we need to bring back segregation, but I'm trying to say is that by the 1960s and seventies, whenever we pull in these um, social programs to try to pull people out of poverty, it seems like it's actually worsened the, the, the problem. So we need to look at these kind of things like, okay, well, obviously the war on poverty is a losing war. Obviously the war on drugs has been terrible for people across this country. The more that we've tried to impose tough restrictions on, on criminals, the, the worse it's made our society. We need to look at these things with, with an honest reflection and, and say, what is actually needed for our country? What's going to best support the people of, the, of our society? What's going to give them the most freedom to succeed? And how are we going to help those who are not able to succeed, right? Like those who are handicapped or are or elderly, right? I think that we should be helping those people. I think that there is a moral cause for us to be helping those people. And I know that a lot of my libertarian friends are going to revoke my libertarian card and I, I don't care honestly, but I think that we do have a moral responsibility to take care of the least of these in our society. Those who cannot provide for themselves, those who maybe have given all that they can give and no longer are giving and, and need to have some help, right? We need to help those people out. But for the rest of us, those who are able to work and those who are able to be trained and to learn new things, how do we make a society that allows for this to happen. And so I think it starts at the upper levels of government. I think that we need to have an honest conversation about the powers of our federal government and how to limit them. So that way the rest of society can start falling into a place where we're just innovative. We're moving forward. We're not restricted by oppressive laws and regulations. We're not restricted by bureaucrats who are not elected or held accountable to anyone that we're able to provide for our families without having 50% of our income taken away to various taxes so that way we can bomb more countries overseas. Right. So that's where I am coming from. That's that's my political philosophy. That's my political heritage. And that's kind of the place that I'm going to be arguing from today as I go through some of these reforms that, I, that I'm proposing. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at some of these reforms. And if, you know, just to be clear, I'm not like some genius that have come that has come up with all of these ideas on my own. This is from years of reading and hearing other people talk about various reforms. I, I've added some of my own touch to it, but I've borrowed heavily from some other people, um, some good ideas that have been put out before and for various reasons have been rejected. So first, we're going to actually jump into the presidency. I think that the executive branch of the United States has probably seen the most increase in power over the years. And probably should be the one that we start with because they're the ones that need to be checked the most. So as evidenced by the amount of terror that currently grips the nation based on who may be president and, you know, heavily leaning towards Biden at this point, right? I think that, I think that really shows us that we need to limit the power of the presidency. Why are people afraid of this or that person having 
the, the title of president, right? Well, because there's so much power behind it currently that whoever gets it, they have the authority and the ability to really significantly change the way that America looks, the way that the government operates, the way that things are done, right? And so I think people are rightfully um, scared by by the concept of, uh, you know, by the um, idea of who could be in, in power. Um, if you're on the left, you're, you're terrified of having a right winger in power because, you know, there may be some of your, um, you know, things that you like, they may, they may go out the window and, and those on the right, you know, they are thinking, oh, well, someone who is left is in power. So now there goes our guns and our religion and everything else, right? Our freedoms, they're out the door. So um, here are some of the constitutional restrictions that I would put into uh, to play um, for the president. And, and maybe this would just be like one giant amendment that would come in, maybe be broken up over several, I don't know. But this is just me imagining, okay? Just imagine that I have the authority to do all of this. Um, the first would be um, the check, the power check of the war powers of the president. Um, so the president is commander in chief, so he has authority over the armed services of the United States. Um, this means that he gets to decide a lot of what's going on with the military, what they're doing, where they're going, and that kind of thing, right? Um, and because he has that title, obviously he should have command of the military. Like that's that's his constitutional authority is to have command over the military as the commander in chief. Um, but the current ability of the president's really drop in troops or use military action basically anywhere in the world at any time that he pleases has been an issue for this country for a while and is, I think, a significant national security risk um, for the U.S. Um, the Constitution is quite clear that the authority to declare war is with Congress. They are the ones who has to declare a formal declaration of war against a nation. Um, so there's like this constitutional thing that says, you know, even though the president is a leader of the armed services, they are not the ones that are able to declare war. Um, now for some time, the president has gone around that and has done military actions across the world, um, unilaterally without the support of Congress, sometimes with the support of Congress, um, Congress tried to amend this issue by instituting the 1973 war powers act. Um, that worked for a while, you know, it, it kind of dealt with what was going on with, uh, Vietnam, you know, the U S got into Vietnam, um, in a bad way, 58,000 American troops died there, millions of Vietnamese dead, um, billions of dollars spent on essentially leaving the country in communist hands. Um, we were there for what, almost I think we went in in the 50s, in the early 50s, we started getting involved with, with Vietnam. Um, when the, the French pulled out, we started getting more involved. Kennedy was involved there that he started sending military advisors. And then um, Johnson, you know, really ramped things up, you know, with the, uh, with the war there. Nixon really ramped things up. So, you know, going from the 50s to, you know, the 70s, the mid 70s, whenever we got out, that was a long time for America to be involved in a military conflict. And it was really based on the presidents. You know, the presidents had the authority to do so. And so Congress tried to override that authority and had some, you know, some success. But um, there is an issue that comes up with what 
is considered war and what is just considered, you know, a military action, right? Um, so does the, while the president might not be able to just go declare war on anybody, maybe he's allowed to send a Tomahawk missile into a building to take out a terrorist. Maybe he's allowed to send in troops, uh, like Navy SEAL special forces, right. To go, uh, you know, uh, rescue or, you know, Americans who are captured somewhere or, um, go take out some bad guys or, or whatever the case may be. Maybe, we're allowed to, you know, do drone strikes, right? That's that's the question I think that is really um, on on the minds of of the president, right? Whoever the president may be, that, that that's on his mind is like, what constitutes a military action versus a declaration of war? So what I would propose would be that we would clarify this, and um, I would say that we would need to clarify the fact that. Any use of military action, whether it's full forces on the ground um, or just dropping a, um, you know, a, a bomb from a drone, like all of those need to be approved by Congress. Um, and now this does not mean that every single thing that is done is done before a full vote of Congress. I think that we could skirt around um, maybe having a select committee of senior staff, senior congressional members who are sworn to secrecy, um, but they are at least overseeing what is going on with these issues and giving the approval to the president to do so. Um, obviously, if we're you know having live votes to go capture some terrorist mastermind, um, this guy's going to know to hide. <laughs> so we don't want to do that. We want to be able to get the bad guys who are causing destruction and, and terror around the world. But at the same time, uh, we do need to have congressional oversight because that is a constitutional authority that has been afforded to them. So we need to return this power to the Congress. They need to have the oversight to to make these decisions. And then once the decision has been made, the president is able to execute the decision in bringing people to justice, putting troops on the ground, whatever the case may be. Um. So I, I think that's I think that's one way that we could we can limit the the power of the presidency, um, and and you know this this thing with 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 the military actions by the president I, I like I said I think it is a huge national security issue because we have done so many things that while we've been trying to get rid of terrorists, we've probably created more terrorists, right? And I know some people push back against the blowback theory, um, but I think it's actually pretty valid in the sense that, um, you know, if you are a villager who really doesn't have an opinion about the United States and the United States comes by and blows up a school where your child is going to, well, you're going to have a strong opinion against the United States now, right? Now, someone who has gone from not really caring about the U.S. now actively hates the U.S. and may be open to propaganda to joining in the fight against the United States. So I think that there is some validity to the idea of, of, of blowback. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I think that the less time that we're spending overseas, the less opportunity there is to, for these, these terrorists to really, you know, push propaganda against us. Um, and so that lessens their recruiting efforts and then they kind of just go away. Um, maybe not entirely, but you know, maybe they do, maybe they don't have the ability to, to recruit anyone anymore because there's no 
video of us you know blowing up kids or blowing up funerals or blowing up weddings right whenever we're doing that whenever we have troops at um you know in iraq and prisons um standing over um you know prisoners you know humiliating them that's just 100 percent propaganda for um for people overseas to hate us so we need to lessen our presence overseas in order to protect our homeland really and so I think that one way that we need to be doing this is to reduce the power, the ability of the president to just unilaterally drop troops in anywhere at any time. Um, now, I would say that this would have a caveat, of course, um, you know, if there was, you'll say Canada, for example, right? Let's say that Canada really decided to hate the United States and said, we're going to invade the United States and then they start amassing troops at the border. I would think that in that point, you know, there's a clear present danger that military action is coming against the United States, um, that the United States would be able, the president would be able to to react and use the troops to fight off that sort of thing. Um, or if there was any time that, you know, let's say the Russians decided to drop bombs on Congress and killed everyone in Congress and the, there's no one in Congress to decide this anymore. Well, of course, the president should be with the ability to command the troops at that time to retaliate and, and to protect the national interest. Um, but it is not a wise idea for the president just to be able to continuously use military action at any time. I want you to consider this. Okay. This country has been around for what? Since 1776. That's currently about 244 years. Um, and in that time, the U S has been engaged in military conflicts for 226 of those 244 years. That is just about 93% of our history has included military conflict. That, that's, that's incredible. I, I don't know of, of any other nation that ha, has that kind of stat. And, and there could be a lot. I don't know. I really don't know. I just know that, that that's extremely high. So, and a lot of that has been, I mean, recently, I mean, think about the last 50 years, how many times, you know, the U S has been present in overthrowing central American, you know, governments or going to Africa and, and hunting rebel leaders or going to the middle East and trying to fight off terrorism, right? Like just thing after thing, after thing happening. And it's not really made our country safer. Has it? I mean, there are a lot more people that probably hate our country now. And a lot of our allies who are less friendly to us because of these things, you know, we need to really rein in that military power. I think we should we should have a very strong military to protect our people. Absolutely. Protect from outside and inside threats, right? We should have a strong military presence. But that does not mean that the president should be dropping in our troops anywhere at any time, right? That's that's just not called for. Um so this may seem like common sense, <laughs> but I, I think that it needs to be laid out specifically. You know, Congress has passed the resolution and the and the president has skirted around that multiple times i mean that resolution was passed in 1973 and how many military conflicts have we been in since 1973 quite a bit so we need to lay this out very specifically what military conflict means what the the power is for both congress and for president you know we we need to lay that out so that way there is no wiggle room and this there needs to be oversight there needs to be someone who is 
looking over these things. So we're just not, you know, doing whatever we want to just because someone wants to have a, you know, an itchy, you know, trigger finger. Right. So next thing would be outside of restoring a balance to the war powers would be clarifying the issue of line item vetoes. Now, this is something that most presidents have tried <laughs> or wanted to have in their presidency. The, the president has the authority to veto any bill that comes out of Congress. You know, the, the House could pass a law and, or pass a bill and the you know, Senate passes it and goes to, to the president. And the president can say, I don't like this. Veto, send it back to Congress for them to either redo it or, you know, do the votes to get override the veto. Now, many presidents have wanted the ability, instead of vetoing the entire bill, to be able to veto specific sections or individual lines of the bill. Um, Congress has, in the past, attempted to give this power over to the president. I believe it was in 1996, the Democratic-led Congress passed a bill that allowed President Clinton to veto items in spending bills. Um, this actually was two years later, um, ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in a six to three ruling. Since then, we've um, not only seen the Democrats who tried to give this power away, and I think they also did with with Obama in a certain way. I forget, I forget exactly, but I remember reading an article saying that they were trying to get around the rules somehow. Um, but the Republican Party has done the same thing with, with Bush. Um, and even, I think, underneath... Uh, Obama, there was a time whenever Senator McCain in 2008-2009 proposed a bill that would allow the president to have a line uh, line item veto over spending bills. What Essentially what he would be doing is he would veto the certain parts and that would go back to Congress for further reconsideration or um, you know, to have the overriding vote. So instead of passing a law with certain sections vetoed, this would send the whole bill back with the sections that he did not like. Um, I would be more open to that personally, but still that that's not, um, what the Supreme court has ruled is the power of the president. So because we're going to continue to have this cycle of, I think courts overruling the presidents in this, I think we need to make it clear that this is what the power of the veto means. Um, and, and, and the problem with this is that I think that, you know, well, I don't think that I know that. The Constitution does not allow the president to be the legislature. He is separate from the legislature. He is not the one who is creating legislation. So if he does not have this authority, then why is he allowed to essentially change entire bills to be completely different from what they were, right? If Congress said, um, you know, we want a bill that allows people to own alligators. I don't know. I'm just making this up off the top of my head. Um, and the president goes through and he, you know, scratches out the word alligators, right? It, it completely changes the bill. It like the, the bill is now completely different than what the Congress had wanted. So he is not allowed to legislate. So we need to have a specific rule that says the president can only veto the entire bill. Now, I do think that um, the president does have the responsibility and the authority that whenever he sends back a bill that he vetoes, that he gives a reason why he is vetoing it. And that could mean 
um, similar to what John McCain was proposing, that he sends back something saying, you know, Section 5, I would not, I, I'm not going to vote for any bill that has Section 5 in it. So if you want to have this bill passed, then remove Section 5 and I'll pass it. Like, I think that's something that the president should be doing, right? That should be part of his power and his responsibility, his authority to do that. Um, but we cannot just have the Congress passing off these powers to the president for him to basically just change any law that he wants to, even if it's just spending bills, right? Like he should not have the ability to change any spending bill in any way that he wants to. Like this, this, this takes away the authority of the, of the Congress. It's their responsibility. And, and really, I think the reason that they want to give this responsibility away is because it impacts the reelection chances if they are, um, you know, sitting here voting against unpopular or popular bills or voting for unpopular bills, right? If they're, if they have a clear record saying that they voted for this or voted against this, it really hurts them, right? It can hurt them. But if the president takes a bill and he votes against something that is very unpopular, then suddenly it's not on the legislator anymore. It's on the president, right? So now, you know, if you're some Senator, like, Oh, well, I know that the president did this and I, I just can't believe he did that. You guys should vote for me, right? Like you're going to, you're probably going to keep your seat because now the responsibility is not on your shoulders anymore. So I, I just, I think that this is a way for, for Congress to, to get rid of their own responsibilities because they want to have better reelection chances. And that's not what they should be doing. Their job is to represent the people in the house and to represent the States and the Senate. And if they're not doing that, then they need to be voted out. They should not be giving this authority over to the president president does not have that authority. He's not the legislature. All right. So moving on, this is probably what I think is the single greatest threat to our liberty coming out of the executive branch. Um, and this is the ability for the president to um, basically execute executive orders, to pass executive orders coming straight from his his pen, decreeing all sorts of things. Um this has done a lot of harm, in my opinion, to our country. So um, this, you know, as as with the line item veto, I think this is a way for the president to sort of become his own legislature. Um, and that's not within his role or within his authority. Now, he does have the authority to execute laws and some would say probably execute them in a manner that he sees fit. So, OK, I get that. Um but, but I want you to th- I want you to think about some numbers here, okay? Um, according to the Heritage Heritage Foundation, and this was from a few years ago, actually before Trump came into office, so this is going to be increased by a few hundred. But there have been just around fourteen thousand numbered presidential executive orders since I think whenever they started counting them with Abraham Lincoln, fourteen thousand. According to the American President Project, there could be as many as 50,000 unnumbered executive orders out there. Now, the president with the most of these um, executive orders, who has, who has issued the most, was President Franklin Roosevelt, who had 3,721 executive orders. Several of those were ruled unconstitutional later. Okay. Um, presidents uh, Adams, Madison, and Monroe each only had one. 
And I believe it was William Henry Harrison. He had none, but he died like within a month of taking over office, who I think is probably the best president ever because he had no time to really hurt the country. But anyways, moving on from that. <laughs> um, now, some of these orders, like one from President Truman in 1948, um, really good, actually, and well within his authority. Um, he desegregated the military. Um, as the commander in chief, I think he has that ability, that authority to make those decisions. However, also in 1940, I think it was, mm, maybe it was in the 1950s, actually. Let me, let me recall that. That's going to be in 1952, 1953, towards the end of his presidency, whenever the Korean War was going on. He made an executive order to nationalize the U.S. steel mills. Now, the U.S. steel workers were threatening a national strike for various reasons. And so he threatened to nationalize, like he, he passed, actually passed the executive order that would have nationalized the steel mills. And it was immediately ruled as, you know, overstretching his authority. Like he did not have the authority to do that. And thank God, um, thank God we have the courts to, you know, check and balance powers out, right? Our system's brilliantly created for that. So why are we trying to avoid these checks and balances? I don't know. Um, another example of overreach would be going back to FDR. Um, he ordered all new gold that was mined or found in the U.S. to be given over to the federal government, as well as any privately owned gold to be turned over as well. So that was a complete overreach and was overturned 40 years later in 1970s um, when you know there was no limits on how much gold that people could have. Man, that was crazy that the government could just arrest you for having pieces of gold in your house. Like, that's that's insane. Um, or from the same president, FDR, who forcefully relocated Americans of Asian uh, heritage background, right? Specifically Japanese, um, putting them in internment camps, essentially the American version of concentration camps. Now, we weren't killing them, um, but they were illegally detained, you know. They did not have their constitutional rights as citizens or residents in this country. That's that's wrong. That's quite an overreach. Um, one of the major issues that could come with executive orders is that you know one president could issue an order, and then the next could issue something that goes against it. So, for example, um, in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. I don't know if that's the right date, but uh, Barack Obama, he he ordered a um, he had an executive order that would essentially have closed Guantanamo Bay, um, the military prison um, in Cuba. Um, there were some corruption and some scandals going on there with the way that prisoners were being treated. So he ordered that to be closed. Um, it was actually um, not closed because they failed to meet some deadlines or something like that. But this executive order was overturned by Trump, who ordered it to be kept open indefinitely. So you see, like, this could be, you know, a major thing, you know, depending on what's on what's changing. It could be a major policy change that could really switch things up and, and mess things up for a lot of people. And for that type of, um, you know change in direction, I think that needs to come from Congress and not from the president. Um, another example of this was whenever, you know, W, <laughs> George W. Bush, he um, he ordered limited access to presidential records. 
you know, and Obama overturned that. So again, like executive orders are are crazy in the sense that they could just be so easily overturned by a stroke of a pen. In Congress, whenever you want to overturn things, like you have to rework the whole bill. Like you have to pass a bill and have it signed into law stating that the old bill was no good, right? Like that's a necessary thing. Things should take a little while to happen in this country or else we're just you know, moving based on emotions and, and you know, populist fervor. And that's not always good for us. In fact, most times it's really not good for us. Um, you know, and then some of the executive orders that we've had, you know, have just explicitly been against the rights enshrined in our constitution. So I mentioned the internment camps a while ago, but think about what happened when um, Lincoln issued the order to suspend habeas corpus. Okay. Now people were being arrested, like even uh, journalists, right? They were being arrested for what they wrote about what was going on in the civil war. They were arrested without warrant and they were held captive without trial indefinitely. This happened during, you know, the, the four years that the United States was at war and was overturned only after the war was over. You know, rights don't go away. And the president should not have the ability to just, you know, wave away rights anytime that anytime that he says that there is an, an emergency. You know, like these rights are belonging to us naturally. We have natural rights as humans. And the Constitution specifies what some of those are, but that does not mean that the government can go through and at any time decide that, oh, well, because it's written in the Constitution and the government is from the Constitution, that the government can now overrule those rights. No, those rights are naturally occurring. I have the right to believe whatever I want to, to say whatever I want to. I have the right to defend my family, right? Those are, I have the right to protect myself. Like those are rights that are naturally occurring to me that the government should not have the authority to take away just because they feel that there is an emergency going on. So I think you get the point about the about these powers that the president has, right? And there are so many things that I probably could go on about talking about things that have hurt millions of people. Um, and this power left unchecked can cause confusion, chaos, or even a constitutional crisis. Therefore, I think that we need a constitutional amendment we need language in the constitution specifying exactly what the president can issue through an executive order and so i think that there are you know several different categories that we could specify um the first would be a ceremonial executive order um so this would be you know issuing orders for for holidays or celebration of great feats you know maybe celebrating you know the u.s olympic team or something like that and or celebrating a, a, a national tragedy um you know remembering like i think those are appropriate for for the president who is the ceremonial head of state you know as well as the actual head of state like he's uh in a ceremonious role a ceremonial role excuse me uh role excuse me um so i think that's incredibly um appropriate for an executive order. And also, you know, those 50,000 unnumbered executive orders, what I didn't say about that was that many of those were earlier orders instructed or like given as instructions to the cabinet. I think that that's fine. Like the president has a cabinet, he gets advice from the cabinet and he orders the cabinet to do things like, so I think that that is an appropriate thing. And that needs to be enshrined in language saying that, you know, he can have executive orders telling, you know, 
housing secretary to do this or do that. And then I think that this would be um, specifically focused on how they would execute certain laws because the president, I think, does have the ability to execute laws as he see, sees fit. Um, now, there there are some people who would debate against that, um, but I think it's been upheld a few times, so I, I'm going to go with it. Um, so I think that, you know, if he's ordering the housing secretary to, um, you know, execute a law that Congress has passed in a certain way about housing, like I think that's appropriate. Um, and I also think it would be appropriate for him to um, use this this power when speaking with the cabinet to like bring about commissions and um, investigative like reporting, trying to figure out um, some data on pressing issues in the country. Right. So if, you know, health crisis is going on right now, like he should be able to say, okay, health and human Cer- uh, health and human services secretary, you know, I need you to create a commission to look into the best way to addressing the, COVID-19 outbreak. Okay. Perfect example of something that he'd be able to do. The HHS secretary would be able to go out and then, you know, do this commission and look and see, you know, how's the best way that we can handle this, bring back the instruction or the, you know, reports back to the president. The president, you know, gives this to the Congress and the Congress can make a bill based on those recommendations. Right. Perfect. Um, And also, you know, the president does have the ability to pardon people. So I think one of his executive orders should be about pardoning pardoning people. So he has that ability enshrined to him in the Constitution. So I think that if he if he issued a, an executive order pardoning such and such person, that's perfectly reasonable. Um, and then also just kind of going back to the instructions of the cabinet, just again clarifying ex, and on like executing laws. Like what what does that mean? Um, so this isn't just related to the cabinet, but whenever um, he's speaking to other federal agencies or you know, talking to the states or whatever, he may clarify on how he intends to execute legislation and, and you know, give an executive order based on that. Um, so I, I think that, you know, specifying what he's allowed to do takes away some of that anxiety that people um, would have, um, you know, right now, like if, if, you know, whenever Biden is chosen as the president by the electors and, you know, initiated on January 20th, if he comes in day one and says, I want an executive order um, limiting how much, how many guns people can have, right? Like there's really no one that's going to be able to stop him. I mean, there may be some court cases, but ultimately if he wants to, I mean, he can do it and he can probably, you know, take it all the way to Supreme court and, and, and win if he wanted to. So, and I just use guns because I know that's one issue that some people fear, but I mean, this could be, um, you know, looking at what Trump did with the orders to restrict people coming into the country, right? It did face some, some, uh, blowback from some of the courts, but ultimately much of it was upheld and he was able, even able to extend that. So these executive orders are something that we need to really check if we want to check what the president's power is. I think you know, we, we do that, 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 that takes away a lot of the fear and the anxiety that we have when it comes to election time and who's going to be president. The president is of that does not have the power to, you know, send troops overseas at any time to do this, right? That that's a good thing. If he does not have the ability to um, just create legislation, either by these executive orders or by having a line item veto, like those are, those are important things. Like he should not be ruling 
the people in such a manner. He's there to execute the laws and to lead the country forward, not to be a one-man show. Um, so the final thing I would say about the president, and this actually kind of transitions us into the other branch that I want to talk about, Congress, would be talking about term limits. So with this next part, I'm going to actually borrow a few ideas from um, a political scientist and professor at the University of Virginia um, named Larry Sabado. Um, there was a book I read from him several years ago. It was like a more perfect constitution. He had some good ideas in there and some ideas I've you know, rolled my eyes at. But So some of his um, idea about the presidential term limits, um, I thought actually is really brilliant. So um, I'm not going to exactly give what he says because I have a little bit of a variant um, compared to him. But yeah, so so let's go ahead and talk about first the president and then getting into the Congress. OK, so first, the presidential term limit. Currently, a president can serve two terms of four years, each for a total of, um, you know, eight years. Right. So. A person, a vice president, if they were to succeed a president during the president's term, this person can actually serve up to 10 years. Right. That's 22nd Amendment, I believe. Um so th this is what was passed in order to give limits to the president Be beforehand. There was no limit to limit to it. And, um, you know, FDR, for example, he was elected to four terms, only served through like three and a partial um, before he passed. Um, but most of the other all the other presidents, they, they, they none of them served more than two terms. They followed the, the tradition of George Washington, who only served two terms. And so after FDR passed, it became, you know, like apparent that like we don't like as good as some people might have like uh, thought that FDR wasn't as much as the country loved him at the time. People realized, you know, maybe it's not the best idea for a president to be able to serve basically indefinitely and have, you know, re-election after re-election. It's not good for the um, Democratic Republican values of the of the country. So um, they passed the twenty second amendment to enshrine the tradition that you know, Washington started and make that the law of the land. Um, so I would actually, so I would change the 22nd amendment and I would say that it would be in the best interest of the nation to have a one term presidency with a six year term. So any individual could be elected to one term as president, but instead of a four year term, they would have a six year term. So I want you to think about the typical two-term president that that we see right there's there's sort of a cycle that we've seen in more modern times so year one they're kind of trying to figure out what the heck they're doing they're coming off the election high and oh you know just like trying to figure out where they're going right they have all these policies that they promised and now they have to figure out how to work with congress and the courts to you know move the country forward um by year two they're starting to make some progress they have some um you know experience underneath their belt um but they potentially could be derailed by you know, congressional elections, which, you know, happen every two years. So um, they, they could be derailed by that. And that could kind of mix things up. And they could also be expected to be campaigning for those um, congressional elections. And so that could take time away from actually being president. Um, year three, you know, they're, they have more experience underneath their belt. But by then, they're starting to look at their own reelection because, you know, the fourth year is coming up soon, so they have to start considering who they're going to be running against. What do they want to do with their next year? You know, what's their chances of, or with their next term? What are their chances of getting another term? So year three is like that gearing up for the, you know, 
following year. In year four, they, they, I mean, they really spent a lot of their year focusing heavily on their reelection efforts. So if they're not reelected after that year four, you know, the next few months is a lame duck period where they just basically sit around and, you know, do meaningless things <laughs> for the three months until the new president is um, sworn in or maybe two months that president is sworn in. Um, and if they are reelected, you know, year five, they have lots of experience now, but now again, they may be dealing with a new Congress, um, depending on how the elections went. Um, many presidents who do two terms often come in their second term with some congressional um, challenges. So um, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's a tough thing, right? Um, you're six, you know, depending on how Congress went, you could have actual work being done. So man, yeah, you're getting things done or it could be gridlock and nothing is getting done. Um, and yet, yet again, they're expected to start campaigning for the congressional um, elections that are coming up. Um, year seven, they have a, basically, they're going to start winding down their presidency. You know, they may get some things achieved during that time, but for the most part, it's like, well, I'm coming to the end of my, my career here and you know, Congress is less likely to work with me. I've, ex- you know, you know, um, what's the word? I, I've used up all of the political, you know, capital that I've had, so I'm not going to get much more done at this time. Um, and they start looking at the people who are going to possibly succeed them. You know, and you know, they want to support their party's candidate. And then year eight, you know, completely lame duck. Nothing's going to get done. Mostly some um, ceremonial kind of stuff, and then you're trying to campaign for your party's next candidate, right? Like you're really spending a lot of time supporting them. So I want you to look and, and consider how much time is wasted on campaigning, either for themselves or for congressional candidates. Like that's a lot of time that's been wasted on campaigning and trying to figure things out. And um, like, wow. So I think that if we reduce the president's term to only one term, he or she no longer has to worry about campaigning for another election. They focus on going in and getting stuff done. And then when their time is up, their time is up. Um, And then a six-year term allows them to actually find the the time to get their groove going, right? You know, no more instead of of having four years to try to figure things out, they have six years. So instead of, you know, the first year or two being all about trying to figure out what their groove is and the next two about campaigning or being lame duck, now it's like you have the first year or two where you try and figure things out and then the next few years you're actually doing stuff and then you wind down in the, in the last year, the sixth year. Um, so I think that this allows them to serve the country more efficiently. Um, and, and, and this honestly, I think would be best if this was in tandem with congressional term limits. Okay. So we are going to touch a little bit more on Congress in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode. Um, specifically about the presidents and limiting their power. Um, Like I said, we're going to um, segue into how we would restructure Congress in the next episode. Thanks, guys. Mm